Hello, my friends. Today, Joel is talking to Amiram, founder of Spot, and they discuss how the CEO's job is always changing, how to transfer culture to new hires, and how to embrace failure as a critical part of success. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. is the Modern CTO Podcast. I was a student trying, a lazy student, trying to uh, get like, you know, the highest grade possible in my final project, uh, running a project about something that the dean has no idea about what I'm doing. So I chose cloud infrastructure uh, and then it turned out to be, you know, a company. Dude, that's pretty exciting. And then you recently sold it to NetApp? Correct. Um, that was about 18, maybe 20 months ago. Dude, this pandemic, the time has gone by it's like so fast. Yeah, it's uh, you're kind of like losing sight on, was it like last year, two years ago, three years ago? I know. I told my wife, we're, we're planning a, a company get-together. So we're bringing everyone into the same location. And... I was like, oh, there's still mask on planes requirement. Some places in Europe today are re- like canceling that requirement, but in the United States today, it's still a thing. And I was like, where, like, how long has this been going on? And we're in year three of this. It's crazy. I can tell you at the beginning of the pandemic, I told my wife, look, I actually think that maybe it's doing a good thing to the world. Like, yeah, maybe people do need to, to wear masks and maybe people do need to wash their hands. Uh, so this is a good thing. And I hope this is going to last uh, for a long time, you know, like the whole hygiene thing. Let's see. I, I think like US is about to, you know, kind of like get rid of uh, masks probably very soon. You know, I'm, I'm happy to see that just the pandemic has become less worrisome because it's not about like, you know, the health system going to collapse. It's more about like maybe like a more uh, a little bit more uh, a spicier um, cold. Yeah, 100%. And I'm all about the health. You know, my uh, brother and stepmom are both physicians. So I hear about it constantly. They have, they, they teach you in med school how to wash your hands properly. And it's this whole, if you ever watch a doctor wash their hands, it's way different than a normal person washing their hands. <laughs> so I was curious to know, um, did this term data fabric, did that exist before the pandemic? Did you guys make that up? Where did data fabric come from? So yeah, data fabric is something that goes with NetApp for a long time before the pandemic. It's about how NetApp connects and being in the center of data, either on on premise and the cloud, in file storage or block storage or object storage. So kind of like being the fabric that connects between all these little things. And obviously, as you know, like huge acceleration in the world of cloud computing has really pushed NetApp to be a pioneer of taking their on-prem storage to the cloud. So it's kind of like really um, using that term data fabric really made sense internally and externally for NetApp. And actually when we came to NetApp, so we we extended this data fabric with something that we call cloud ops that we can talk a lot about it, but data fabric goes a long way. And so what what's how do you define, I, I've got a couple of, terms that I'm curious about. So we got data fabric, cloud native. So to give you a background, uh, 17 years as a software engineer, the past seven to nine years, mostly Ruby on Rails. 
So I've built like large scale enterprise applications, things of that nature. Um, but I'm curious, uh, what is the difference between a cloud native app and a non-cloud native app? So a great question. Cloud native is uh, probably a very overly used term that people don't really know what it means. So cloud native means that it's a modern built for the cloud, but it can also be used on different clouds. So two aspects here in cloud native, one that it's modern and built for the cloud. And second, that it's can actually not tie to a specific cloud. It can work on multiple clouds. That's why you see like that there is a foundation like the CNCF, the cloud native computing foundation. Then when they accept new projects into their foundation, they need to like really meet those requirements that this is something that people can use on any cloud. So it has no tie into a single provider. And this is something modern that can actually use the elasticity of the cloud and the power that cloud gives you to support that. Yeah, if I'm using like an Amazon specific web service that maybe is available at Microsoft, but isn't available at like the third provider, um, because I have that web like web service like at Amazon, am I still can I still be cloud native? So usually you're not going to see the term cloud native being used by Amazon or Google. Like you're not going to see them like saying, "Hey, our specific service is a cloud native service." They're not going to say that. But when you're going to use like something like um, Kubernetes, so Kubernetes is a cloud native service. It can work on any service. You know, Kafka is a cloud native service. You know, Envoy Proxy, the cloud native service, like and lots of other projects in the cloud native foundation, it's it can work on multiple clouds. So this is the term you you would mostly hear from the open source community and from independent software vendors, less from the cloud providers. Got it. And so for for Spot, my best understanding of it because I got to talk to your CTO. So let's see how well we did. <laughs> he was a funny guy too. Uh, you basically are this API. So instead of me APIing directly maybe to Amazon or Microsoft, I API to you to build my server infrastructure. And you're going and you're figuring out where the best compute is. And so I write it once against your API. And then I don't have to maintain multiple APIs and I'm always getting the best price. Is that what it is? Yes, this is how it works. But I don't want you to think of Spot as the Expedia of the cloud. So it's not like that you want to book a flight ticket and you come to Expedia and you want to see all the providers and then go and choose a flight ticket. Uh, because this is not what we're doing. We're not like referring you to a cloud or optimizing across different clouds or you know brokering across clouds. It's like, no, like we are, I would say, even before we provide optimization, we provide automation. We really founded a company to help companies automate how they use cloud compute. Because when you use compute infrastructure in the cloud, there are a lot of things you need to take care of. You need to take care of choosing the compute size, choosing the compute type, choosing the compute price, then seeing that it's not idle and you need to turn it off or it's not <clears throat> underutilized, so you need to downgrade it or upgrade it. So there are a lot of things that surrounding you as a DevOps person when you launch compute and manage compute. And we wanted to automate all of that. So we wanted to automate the provisioning, we wanted to opt automate the, how you select pricing and how you right-sizing your, uh, your compute. And then this automation ultimately yields optimization. So it's not an Expedia type of things. It's more about having automation software that I use that the output of it is optimization. 
Oh, awesome. So it, it will work like within one specific provider. So if I have Amazon, it's going to find me like the best price instance and turn, you know, adjust my instances accordingly uh, in, in an automated way. The same way, like if, if I were just a cloud ops, DevOps engineer sitting in there and monitoring everything live, you just have automated that. Exactly. Got it. All right. Well, that that makes a lot of sense. I like that. Now, tell me a little bit about like I, I know you I know you sold the company, but you're still the CEO there, correct? Yeah, I lead everything as spot. Uh, so technically, not a lot has changed for me, you know, since selling the company and working under NetApp, because I still run the business the way I ran it before. Maybe I get a little bit more help from other functions at NetApp, and you know, I have like a bigger finance, bigger HR, bigger, you know, bigger pockets. Um, but in terms of like, uh, I think like six months or 10 months into the acquisition, I, I had an interview and I said, I don't even feel like I sold the company. I'm doing the very same thing. I'm waking up in the morning. The only thing I don't do is I don't talk to investors anymore. I just don't, I just do the very same thing. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that, that's that got to be, um, well, I mean, and there was like, you sold it for like several hundred million dollars. <laughs> so there is some some difference, right? Yeah, you know everything is like you know uh, relative in, in 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 life, and you take it into proportions. But uh, yeah, definitely, uh, I felt like you know the acquisition is on a f- on the financial aspect. Like I felt like I was reborn to the world. Obviously, you know, not coming. I I wasn't rich before, and I'm not coming from a rich family or something. And definitely, that changed my my life and my probably my the next generations. But um, Technically, it's not changing anything in my life. I'm not going to buy more expensive clothes or more expensive shoes or something like this. It's just uh, you have the comfort uh, to operate and you have the comfort to you know, raise your family in a, in a better way. No, I totally understand the security aspect of it. Like I thought that you know, people that, because I grew up poor as well, like not, not well off. And um, I thought that you know, when you get more money, you're going to buy like, you know, I still buy my shirts at Target, man. <laughs> like, you know, I, I, it's way more fun to have money in the bank and just know that like you can wake up and choose how you want to spend your time than it is like, you know, buying stuff, buying stuff gets bored. Sometimes we had, we had to do like a remodel here of, of our, um, of the house that we bought. And I had to spend money, right? Because you have to buy all the materials and stuff. And I was like, I'm so sick of buying things. Like, I hate buying things. I only like to spend money on things that make me more money. <laughs> like you, like me, um, I, I absolutely feel the same. Uh, you know, Target, like uh, my wife really likes Target. This is where we buy for our daughter's uh, clothes and stuff. And and you see, I think like it's, it's really about uh, knowing the fact that you can remodel your house. It's, it's a good, you know, thing to, to go to sleep with and wake up in the morning. Uh, but the buying process, it's not, not fun. Like actually like the building process, it's uh, much, much better. Oh yeah. I like was trying to tell the contractors, I'm like, I build stuff, but just on the computer and they look at me. <laughs> like nerd i'm like it's all right you guys keep going <laughs> oh man this is fun so hey when did you move from israel to the united states i moved a company started in 2015 and like mid 2015 about uh may june something like this i moved around uh, early 2016 but i basically the way i moved was uh you know i told my wife to quit her job. She was working for a different tech company in Israel. And I told her like, I must go to the US. And the funny story behind it is, 
we had a board meeting, one of the first board meetings for Spot. And I told the board, hey, I think I should go to the US because I want to bring US-based customers. And you know, I feel like I should be there uh, in order to um, get those customers. And they told me like, no, nah, don't sweat, like don't do it. It's just probably going to be a waste of your resources and time right now. Uh, just stay here until we have 100 customers or something and then move to the US. So on that night, I actually booked my flight ticket to go to the US. And, um, you know, like everyone said no. And I said like, no, that's the right thing to do right now. And so my wife quit her job and uh, followed me. We just took like two suitcases and came to San Francisco and, you know, with not like a very clear plan on what to do. Uh, so that was a amazing experience, I can say. Yeah. Yeah. You're an adventurer. So I'm curious to know about, so you're from Israel. You were born there, correct? Born in Israel. Correct. And so I have a lot of friends over there and there, there's like a, it's homogenous. Like a lot of the people have similar views. It's like, there's, it's a really tight country. There's a lot of pride. There's, you know, people do the uh, serving in the defense force. And I was curious, what was it like going from a society that's close like that to a country that has recently become like divided pretty significantly? So I, I think it's really depends like who are your close circles, right? Uh, when you come to San Francisco, so, you know, it's a different, it's a different United States than if you go to New York and it's a different United States than if you go to Tennessee, it's a different United States than you go to like, you know, Seattle. So I felt like that I'm just getting into like a tech industry where like, you know, we have like, we live by standard rules and culture. And so I didn't feel like, you know, much of a change. Uh, you know, maybe in, in restaurants or in shopping, like, you know, we were like really experiencing like the different culture between, um, you know, the Israeli way and like the U.S. way. But at work, I think like it was pretty smooth and easy transition. But a big, a big thing I did notice between um, U.S.-based um, companies and Israeli-based companies, and I'm, I'm actually seeing it every day, like working for a U.S. company right now and running an Israeli company before, is that in Israelis companies, like usually like they work in small teams, work really fast, very biased for action, very biased for like, yeah, let's do it, maybe fix, let's, you know, let's just make a decision. And I think in like bigger companies, US companies, it's more about like, it's not about one decision, it's about the process. And it's about like having a lot of people saying what they think, and you can debate it for much longer. And, you know, things can take longer. And I don't think that like one method versus the other is good or bad. But it's just like a fundamental um, change that I see between these two, like companies type. And it just for me, it was a little bit hard to adopt and adjust for this new model. Um, and, you know, knowing that like, yeah, it's going to take more time, more process to get something done. Um, but this is, this is a big thing between companies that I can tell you that I see every day. Yeah, I think it's also relative to size, right? Because like when you're a small company and you have to make payroll and cash flows like critical, you make incredible actions. But when you're a multi-billion dollar company and you're thinking about the direction of the future, you can sort of have imagination and mull that over and debate that for a little bit. But when you have to make payroll, there's very little debating and there's a whole lot of action. <laughs> One of the things that really impressed me when I was reading and like researching you was uh, there was a lot of 
press around the fact that the acquisition was really successful, like post acquisition. So usually I do a lot of these interviews, right? And so people get their company acquired, I research it, and you've got all the articles about, oh, so-and-so acquired so-and-so, right? But I never see articles that talk about the success like months later after the acquisition and how well it's doing. Um, it seems like your company, uh, as far as NetApp's portfolio, was doing super well. It, it is actually true. Um, um, and I'm, I'm very happy about it. Uh, it's not, I did not say it, but, you know, officials at NetApp said that, you know, this is like the best acquisition NetApp has ever made, um, you know, both on the technology side, revenue side, people side, like it really added a lot of added value to NetApp. It took NetApp from, you know, it accelerated the migration to the cloud and what NetApp is bringing to the cloud, but also, you know, when we were acquired, like we were just like on revenue of, you know, maybe tens of millions of, of, of dollars of, of revenue. And, you know, this kind of like grew four or five times uh, in the course of 20 months. Um, so there was a huge acceleration on the revenue. There was a huge acceleration on the people because all the people of Spotlight kept their position, you know, including me, including my staff, um, including all the engineering, all the product. Everyone like who is part of spot like usually also in acquisitions you see there is an acquisition and then all the management is churning very very fast, uh, but it didn't happen here at the beginning. Uh, it was really fundamental to keep the growth um, going, and also I must give you know very positive feedback here to the to the NetApp folks that just kept spot executing on the path of execution and did not steer us from that execution path with a lot of, uh, you know, after acquisition, you wanna make a lot of changes and you wanna, you know, you wanna kind of like op uh, operationalize a lot of um, areas in the company, but they just let us run. They didn't change anything. And I think this is what let us thrive inside this process, which can be a very, very tough, harsh, exhausting process of integration. It was pretty easy, smooth, fast, welcoming, and I think the output is that revenue is growing, people are staying. That's what every acquirer want, wants at the end of the day. Absolutely. And it's, they're smart, right? Because if it's working, uh, rarely do I go tinker with systems that are my best systems that are most efficient and they're working the best and providing the best. My time is spent fixing the broken things or figuring out what the new things are. Exactly. This is great. So overall, a super positive experience with the acquisition. Very positive experience. I think right now it's, um, you know, I always said that um, as a CEO, you actually need to apply for your job every three months again and again, because your job is always changing. So the fact that, you know, I've hired myself or the board that hired me, uh, chose to invest in me when I was, um, you know, five people company, and then I'm 20 people company, I'm 100 people company, I'm 200 people company, and then do, am I the right person still to lead it? Am I doing the, the right things? Do I know to run a company that is growing from 20 to 100 people, from 100 to 500 people? Because everything changes and things are like, you know, when you stretch the company, so lots of things stretching and you need to build lots of engines, fix existing engines. And, um, you know, for me, it was quite of experience to see the company growing from 20 million, 40 million, 60 million, 80 million of annual recurring revenue. And and right now, taking it to the hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, this is a completely different scale, completely different thinking, completely different way to 
um, you know, build and oil the, the go-to-market machine. Lots of new challenges for me that I really like, uh, but also, um, you know, for the teams and the way we hire. So definitely was uh, quite of a, you know, journey for me so far. Yeah. And you seem really bright. You'll know, you'll know yourself and have good self-awareness to know if you want to solve this next level of challenges or you want to let someone else do it or, you know, have someone help you with it. So you can't get as far as you've gotten without having a good amount of self-awareness. <laughs> but I can tell you, Joel, that the North Star was always setting company culture and high standard. And I'll talk about culture in, in, in a bit. And the second thing is about really always mentoring, like keep mentoring yourself with people. Like, because if you don't read books, if you don't listen to people who already did that and been there, you probably don't have tools to be successful. So the culture of setting people, and we can talk about why it's so important. And second, it's always like learning from people and reading books. Uh, this is what just keep you just above water. Absolutely. What, like, how do you do culture at spot? First of all, you need to see, like, you need to look at other companies and how they do culture and see what worked well for them, what didn't. Uh, one of the companies that I really liked watching on how they keep their culture, not liked watching, I would say amazed or shocked or sometimes just looking at them and being super jealous. Like, how do they do that? Because I talk with people there and everyone is talking the same language. Everyone is like knowing exactly what to do. It doesn't matter if it's a VP or, you know, someone like who is on a really junior role. Like everyone is just talking the same talk and doing the same work. And, and this is Amazon. And I was fascinated by how Amazon is taking their leadership principles and applying it in every little step of the way of their company's journey. This is how they hire. This is how they fire. This is how they promote. This is how they give feedback to each other. And this is how they pretty much break the ego and break the mafia, if you will, or and break the, the hierarchy with what is the right thing to do. And setting a company culture is you're basically telling the company, hey, this is what we believe in, like this five, 10 things and everything you do and everyone you hire or every feedback that you give must always, you always need to look at this and know that you're doing the right thing. And it doesn't matter who said it, how senior is this person, how long is this person in the company? As long as like you're going with that culture in mind, you'll probably do the right thing. And this has worked amazingly for us because I've seen people who are super new to the company executing and, and leading and taking on, on themselves saying like, hey, we want to do it because it's really important for our customers. And this we want to do this because we, we care about this value. And I was not in the room when they said that. And only when you're not in the room and good things happening, you know that you have a machine that is progressing towards the, the goal you want to you wanna set. Absolutely. They have a fantastic book too, where they write about, it's pretty short, where they write about the Amazon principles. Um, how how did you like obviously it's in the culture in the sense that people are doing this and when new people join they see the other people doing this but how do you like originally tell people is it in the orientation where you say these are like the things that we value and this is how we operate how do you get that information to new employees so it starts with hiring actually so before the person joins your team so like the first thing they do in in an interview process is um you know, there are two folds into that, like the candidate and the hiring manager. So the candidate looks at the 
the leadership principles that we have, the, our culture, our values. And then the hiring manager always set for that specific position. These are like the top three values I really care about. And I'm going to rate that candidate based on these three um, uh, uh, these three uh, um, values. And something, you know, I saw Elon Musk talking about a lot when he interviews people. It's like always really digging into, tell me a story about a problem you solve. Because people who really solve the problem can really go five, seven layers down, you know, peels all the layers and like really tell you how they solve the problem. People who didn't solve the problem can barely go like one layer down, two layers down. And then when you talk about specific examples and stories from their past experience, and they talk about specifically about these areas of values or culture you, you like, so you know who you're talking to. They also know what they're signing up for. And it starts there and continues in a very tedious continuous effort of every week, every process, every call, always talk about culture because it's something that doesn't leave you. And if you stop talking about it for two weeks, people will forget about it. Absolutely. And this information is easy, but doing it tends to be hard. Why do you think people fail at actually executing this? Because when people are busy with surviving, it's, it's hard to apply culture. But but when you understand that, I've read it in the Hard Things About Hard Things uh, of Ben Horowitz, amazing book, just recommended everyone who listens now, um, that Ben is actually like, there is a, there, there's a lot of like talking points about culture, but Ben in one of the, the chapters says like, why is culture important at all? Like if you have a great product, you know, to my point, like some companies really really busy at surviving, building a product or surviving, getting revenue, surviving, doing this, surviving. And so why do you really care about culture if your product is amazing? Like, you know, Uber is such a great product. Google has such a great product. Amazon's not, like, why do you care about culture? Like things can work. And obviously you can be nice to each other, but like, why do you really care about culture? And, and he says there that culture is important when things go wrong. And there is a law that things will always go wrong. So when things will go wrong and, you know, you lost a customer, uh, you didn't deliver on, on, on the deadline, you, you failed to do something. So like, okay, what do you do now? How do you fix it? This is where really culture, like, been measured. And um, I see it every day that when we fix things, if we don't go according to the culture, like, it can break you. I had an amazing moment today where... Something went wrong in, in the sense that uh, somebody didn't... I had a client email me, right? Asking me for a status update on their project. And I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> you know, why, why, is, why, why aren't they in the know? They, the client should be always informed and then know when the next time they're going to talk. And we, that's like our level of quality. And someone who was like out sick had dropped the ball, but they messaged me on Slack and they're like, you know, very sorry. I take 100% responsibility for this. It's never going to happen again. I'm going to put this system in place to ensure it. And, you know, cause we're a newer company. We only have about like 11 people. So our systems are still pretty fluid. Um, but the fact that uh, I've been going at this company for about four, four or five years now, but the fact that like that was a response from one of my like employees, I was like, yes, we're on the right path. Yeah. yeah, that's that's exactly you want that people will speak to like people in your organization and feel like they are the CEOs. And if that's what's happening, so you know you did your job right. Oh yeah, for sure. I tell people it's like at a restaurant, 
Like the way I want to operate my company is like at a, there, there's different types of restaurants. You order crab legs at some restaurants, they bring you a bunch of crab legs, give you a cracker and say, good luck, right? Other restaurants, the high-end restaurants, it comes to you, beautiful melted butter. It's already completely cracked open. You just grab it out. Like I want to be that if, I mean, it's so strange that people would consciously choose to not have that company. It's like, that's the, that's the company you want to have, right? <laughs> So it's so funny, Joel. Like I remember, like when when Spot was one year old, it was my birthday, and uh, and uh, my wife took me to Mexico for like a short weekend in Los Cabos. It was San Francisco to Los Cabos, like you know, two hours flight. Um, so we go there, and you know, we get, we go into the hotel, like high end hotel, and there is like this uh, personal concierge comes to me and asks, "Hey, do you guys have allergies to food?" Do you guys have any like things you would like us to know? And I said like, yeah, I I, I hate mayo. Uh, it's like okay, and then I go to dinner, and then the you know the servant come to me and say, hey, we are aware that you don't like mayo, so we just want you to know that in this one, two, three, um, you know, entrees there is some some sort of aioli that you want to avoid. And I I actually told this story to to in a whole hands meeting like when it was like twenty people company. And I told him, like, I want to be this company that, like, a customer tells us something and we use this thing for the, the entire customer's lifetime. And then you feel so special as a customer. You feel it like these guys are professional and I'm getting what I want. And to your, uh, you know, restaurant story. Absolutely. That's one of the reasons why. Like my entire stock portfolio, every company that I'm investing in, like the founder is still there because it's up to us on, we are literally where it stops as far as what we will allow. And so we get to choose how far from the standard we'll let the company deviate before we step in. And that's something that I've been, uh, I'm still learning. Uh, I'm just continuously learning and growing at it, but um, it gave me a whole new look of businesses now. Because now, now I can tell, like, oh wow, if there's a company with this culture, I know what their CEO or their founders like. <laughs> yeah, and and Ben Horowitz also saying something really important that a company's culture should be a culture that the CEO can live by. So if you're asking your team to do something you're not doing, you're in troubles. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, that's why, man. Discipline has been such a factor in this entrepreneurial journey, like working out, fitness, eating healthy. Basically, I tell people that like, I train like an athlete to survive entrepreneurship. <laughs> so true, man. I've never, never really thought about it like this, but this is, this is so true. And uh, we, we have this like sentence uh, that we didn't, you know, invent that sentence, but we always say it internally that uh, we don't trust motivation we trust discipline because you're not gonna have motivation every day to wake up in the morning and you know be um you know the next big thing but you will have discipline to wake up every morning and answer customers and do this and do that and motivation is on top of it yes and whenever i'm struggling i put on jocko or david goggins and i just listen to them speak because man they are hard people <laughs> And so I'm like, yep, I, I just need to tap into my inner Goggins. I'll go outside and run until my legs hurt or, or whatnot. <laughs> but I'm curious to know, um, is leaders.vc, is that like an investment fund or is that a place where you're like sharing knowledge with other entrepreneurs or is it a little bit of both? Can you explain what leaders.vc is? So leaders.vc is uh, an investor at spot 
uh, that invested in Spot in, uh, in uh, Series A, Series B, uh, sat on the board of Spot, been very helpful to the to the Spot journey and, and acquisition, and actually continued to add a lot of value even post acquisition with uh, with mentoring, with connecting us with customers, with with helping us in any any anything that we need. I think that it is not only important to build your product, but also see how other people build their products and what's happening in the industry. So through like being part of being very close to Leaders VC, um, I'm able to like really understand the ecosystem better. So like I'm, you know, sharing knowledge, helping, seeing like how one plus one can become five or sometimes one plus one, maybe it's not even two. Uh, so really you know, using the connections and the reach that leaders have to other companies to help those companies, help us, help leaders to like yeah, have like the triangle of success. Do you have any other entrepreneur entrepreneurs that are younger that reach out to you for insight or help with with problems? Yes, and I love to take these calls all the time. I like going and and speaking at accelerators and you know uh, startups, um, hubs, and stuff like this. Just talk about because we didn't have an easy start at the company. It was hard for me to raise money. It was hard for me to go on each step. You know, when I look back, like you know, everything like looks amazing up to the right. We always grew. We always did the right thing. But man, I struggled. I struggled a lot. I had like lots of sleepless nights. I was sweating a lot. I was, you know, going through a lot of horror stories. Um, and and I want to help people who are going through this journey. Um, and um, if I can help someone and, you know, help him avoid like three, five mistakes, that's going to make me super happy. Absolutely. Yes. I When I get to do a lot of these conversations, you know, every, we, the story is the highlight reel. You know, but but the realness is concerned about payroll standing in the kitchen with your wife at two in the morning, not able to sleep. You know, like the the real moments are like, you know, you have your I started my business the month like my child was born, my first child. And so I had like no income. I was spending my savings and I just had a baby that I have to take care of. And you know, as a dad, your instincts just change and kick in. And it's and it's scary and it's hard, but when you tell the story. You know, that stuff isn't in it. <laughs> that stuff's not in my story, really. And so whenever I see other entrepreneurs, I'm always like, man, I, I know they've seen a, a lot of pain and I, I don't necessarily want everybody to like share it like constantly and have to rip it up. But I do think it's important to help out the next generation of people so that they don't feel like so alone with it, you know? That's true. And and you know, I this is a tip I always give to every every entrepreneur just starting uh, their way. Try to learn from failure, not only from success. So usually go and ask all these people who like you know made all these impressive exits and stuff. But they tell you like exactly what you're saying, Joel. Like like they'll tell you the highlights of the story. They're not going to tell you about like the bad stuff. When you're going to talk with someone who failed and actually shut down a company or shut down a product. So they're going to tell you like, that's what we did. That's what happened. And there is a, there is an Israeli show uh, called uh, Silicon Valley, which like, you know, Silicon Valley about like these uh, three or four Israelis companies that are going through like fundraising and stuff and they're not making it. And, uh, and, 
you know, to me, it was much nicer to watch this than like reading the news about this unicorn and this unicorn and this unicorn. You really want to hear about horses and what went wrong for the horses and what can I do to avoid of not doing their mistakes. 100%. When I started this, I was looking for people, not not the podcast. When I started my entrepreneurial journey, uh, I was looking uh, at, at different companies and I was I started going to like hang around the venture capital funds and like the hubs and things like that in my town. And one of the things that I you'll see is you'll see a lot of failure, right? Because those people are they're trying, they're doing the incubator thing, it fails. And one of the things that I picked up on after a couple months of hanging around that crowd was the reason, like they'll always ask you, oh, what's the reason you failed? Was it money? Was it people, talent? Like what why did you fail? The market wasn't there. And everybody had an excuse and it was always categorized neatly into these, you know, 20 different things. And what I realized, like looking at the trend across all of them is the reason why they failed is because they quit because I'll be at Walmart cleaning toilets, making this thing work. And I decided that from the beginning and I will never give up. And so that mindset, I think, I don't know how to have success without that mindset. I've not done it. Uh, couldn't agree more. And, and you know, a few things about like failure and looking at looking at failure. I absolutely agree that quitting is like that's the the main reason for for failure. And um, I've read an article. This really changed a lot in my thinking. But do you know like these what, these moments that you you always believe in something, but when you read that somebody else thinks about exactly the same like you, you're saying like, man, like. I'm not the only crazy guy. And this thing I, I read is, you know, when you look at companies who fail and, and for example, let's, let's go to like a comp, like a, you know, just a random company that's, you know, they're not doing well on marketing. So what the CEO will do is like, he'll replace the VP of marketing, hire, hire a new VP of marketing, right? Create a new plan, or they're not doing well on sales. So like they'll hire a new VP of sales, new CRO, not doing well on product, like gonna hire a new, whatever product manager. Uh, fine, but like when the company is failing and like they're shut down the company, so you ask the CEO, "Hey, dude, like what what went wrong?" So he'll tell you, "Look, the market was not ready, and we like the, we were too early, and this and that." Like, like no, it's it's you. Like it's you to blame. It's like you did not do your job, and it's really about like the, the person who navigates to okay. If you're early to market, pivot. If you're uh, if you're entering into a market with too many competitors, like find your uh, your claim to fame. And it's really about you. And it's about, to your point about quitting. So like if you quit and you're not seeing like what you need to do. So that's the biggest, the biggest thing to watch out for. And the last thing to say about failure is something that Jeff Bezos said in a lot of interviews. And I, I took with me in my backpack as CEO is failure is part of success. If you don't fail, you can't succeed. If you don't try, if you don't have like a high risk reward, like you won't be able to like, if you always do singles and doubles, fine. But like, you need to like take like huge risks to make it big time. And, and sometimes this risk won't, won't work and you, not, you don't need to fall in love in your ideas and you always need to change. But failure is part of success. And, and, and I told the team, like Jeff Bezos said, he said on himself, like, I've made a billion dollar worth of, of mistakes in Amazon, like over a billion dollar. And that's fine because at the end of the day, like, we want to grow Amazon. And that's what I told my team the entire like time. Like, 
don't afraid to make mistakes, don't afraid to invest, don't afraid to change, don't don't afraid. Like this is a culture that we want to have in the company. Now, this is just, um, again, culture. I like that you keep referencing Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos interviews because I intentionally seek out like every interview they do and listen to them because they're two of the richest people on the planet. And, you know, and they both came from nothing, essentially, like they came from at best middle class. Right. So and and they've become the richest people on the planet. Yeah. One of the things that I learned from um, uh, Jeff Bezos was uh, don't make um, bet the company bets. So like investments where you could lose the company. So that was something that I had to learn where like you have to keep enough cash to be intelligent, you know, but you also have to invest. So you sort of have to be really, really good about asset allocation in order to to take risk, but also not die. <laughs> this is great, man. I you're, we have we have a few minutes left before we wrap up. Was there any uh, topics that we that you wanted to cover that we didn't get to? We should probably tell people to go sign up for Spot, right? <laughs> How do they do that? How do people sign up or learn about Spot? You know, I, I really enjoy like this conversation is far more e- educational. Um, adding value uh, and then just, you know, going over like the spot product portfolio and register and the value proposition we add. Um, I think like, you know, um, you know, spot has proven to be a great company, not because of our technology, but because of like how we treat customers and our customer success and our customer support. Like um, that's, you know, I, I just welcome everyone to try our products just so you try our customer success uh, and support, like you'll have a problem. You, you, you can reach out to me over phone in 30 seconds if you need. Uh, that's the mechanisms that we have internally to like ensure customer satisfaction. Um, so I really welcome everyone go to spot.io and try, try it. And um, yeah, I've enjoyed because these things like what help people build companies. And um, I'm happy that we can share some stories and I'm super glad for your success and you know, it's great to see like you also like talking about your experience. So it's, uh, I had a lot of fun. Yes. No, me too. And then for people that like your culture and they might be interested to come work at spot, you guys have a career page as well on spot.io. We do career page with like, I think over maybe a hundred open, uh, positions. So just go and look whatever works for you. And uh, I'm sure you can find something there. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.